On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Julia, and Julia was married to a psychologically abusive Rambo. It's a story of generational trauma, caretaking, rage, intimidation, infidelity, child self-harm, and feeling whole. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Julia. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I am doing well, and if you want to be a guest like Julia is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please do read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do read all of the instructions and send it in the format that we ask for. And today, you are going to hear Julia's story and there's a big trigger warning on this episode we have strong language in this episode we discuss suicidal ideation in this episode there is child self-harm in this episode and it's a graphic uh, description of child self-harm in this episode as well as uh, physical aggressiveness it's not uh, physical violence where there's actual Uh, like hitting going on or physical abuse going on, but it's right to that level where it's it's going to happen. So it's a very intimidating physical aggressiveness. So a big, big trigger warning on this episode. There will be one spot where I will give a big trigger warning as it is happening. And that is because it's the part where there is child self-harm graphic description going on. So that will be in there. And when it comes to Julia's story in in this show, we have had all different types of abusers from the Lundy Bancroft list of abuser types, but I don't know if we've ever had a clear-cut Rambo like uh, we have today. You're going to hear a story today where the way that Julia grew up, it makes a lot of sense why she would be attracted to a Rambo, someone who's a protector. And someone who is seen by their friends as this protector type, but is also getting into uh, rage issues and and fights with other people. But when when you hear Julia's story, it makes perfect sense of, of why she would be attracted to someone like this. And I think this is a really interesting episode for everyone to hear. Things are really uh, clear cut as far as understanding, um, you know, why someone stays in the situation, but also what is attractive about someone uh, like this as well. So I just really want to thank Julia for being here with us today. And without further ado, Julia, the floor is now yours. All right. Well, thank you. I'll start from the beginning. I was raised in a large family. I have six siblings and I'm one of the younger siblings. My mom is a uh, first generation American living here in the States and that affected 
and formed who I am and the choices I made because of that. Um, my dad grew up with some trauma in his life as well, and that definitely affected and formed um, decisions that I made in my life. We were raised in a pretty strict religion, very controlling. It was almost like when we were being raised, we as individuals and we as in my siblings, we didn't get to choose who we wanted to be. It was all laid out for us. And part of that is due to the religion. And part of that, I think, was just because of my parents. So I felt like growing up, I constantly had to be someone that I didn't feel like was natural to me. I've always felt like something was different with me. Something was wrong. I've always felt alien um, to other people um, because I would watch TV shows and movies and see, oh, this is what traditional kids my age are growing up with and given this love and the support. And I'm not, but I'm being told I am. It was just hard growing up in this world where I was basically being told everything is great. I am blessed, but I did not feel blessed or great. So my mom grew up very poor. She grew up with a lot of trauma and a lot of fear and a lot of neglect. And that poured over onto me and my siblings. Uh, my mom would share a lot of really dark personal stories about how her life was growing up. And it made me feel special that she would share it with me, but it also made me feel very scared. So when my mom would pour these stories to me, I felt like it was my job to make her feel better, to take care of her. And she would tell me stories about how she had been abused um, by other family members. And sometimes like, I could, I could pick up on, okay, my mom's in that mood where I can tell she's upset. She's going to talk to me. I'm going to go run and hide in my room because I can't handle this. And this would be at, at a young age for me um, when she would tell me these things. So she had this fear already that she instilled in us that the world is not safe. When she would leave to go to work, she would tell my siblings and I, we were left at home alone frequently. Um, she would tell us, you guys need to lock the doors or someone is going to come in here and do something really bad to you. And she'd be specific and graphic about it. Um, I remember as a kid making safe spots in my house because I was scared. Um, I would make like little hidey holes and places and closets where no one could find me because I was scared that I was going to be attacked. Um, my parents' relationship, very dysfunctional. They didn't show a lot of affection towards each other. My parents communicated basically by yelling at each other. My mom had a has a very fiery temper. She gets very overwhelmed. And part of it is understandable when you have six kids and you're living in a, in a new country and you don't speak the language. I can assume it would be very stressful. Um, and growing up, we, we were kind of raised to, to understand the things that my parents went through and to understand that this is the way it is because this is the way it is. And therefore us kids need to be more patient and more understanding to what they've been to, which 
is completely true, but it also invalidates any feelings that I had as a kid. So when my mom would get angry, she would throw things at us. Um, she would slam drawers when, it, and it was just constant yelling, constant loudness all the time. I remember just hiding out in my room for the most part and hearing fighting going on. Um, my mom would often resort to using silent treatment, and um, it it was really painful and sad and it really scared me because she would she would escape the argument by being very dramatic and saying i'm going to go sleep in the car so she'd sleep in their car in the driveway overnight sometimes for two nights in a row three nights in a row and the whole time i'm thinking i'm I'm terrified as a little girl is my mom okay is she cold am i allowed to go talk to her and just feeling really confused and, and sometimes feeling like I need to take care of her, but then going to talk to her and her giving me the cold shoulder. So it's just really mixed messages growing up, um, never feeling normal, never knowing what to do. Um, my father was definitely the patriarch of the family. It was, you listen to him. These are his roles. And we respect him. And that was um, due in part to the religious beliefs um, that was pretty prominent in our family or in the religion. It was that you, you, the men, you listen to the men and they know what's best. Growing up in this religion, women were basically told that, you know, your goal in life is to get married, most likely young, and to have kids. So I grew up really wanting to have kids since, since probably the I was five years old. I knew I wanted to be a mom. Um, It was just in me that I wanted to be a mom. Another aspect of the religion was family is forever. And um, we've got to be so good here on earth before the second coming. And that was terrifying to me. Um, At the time we were told, you know, the second coming is coming. Jesus is coming. And anyone who's bad is going to die. So I grew up with feeling this fear of if I'm not good, I'm going to die at the second time. If I'm not good enough, I'm not going to be with my family. So just a lot of fear-based guidance (laughs) growing up. Also, my, my dad, I think, dealt with a lot of undiagnosed depression because he too would, and say things to us as kids out of, out of anger or fear, he would say things like, I can't take it anymore. I just want to, I just want to blow my head off. And saying this out loud now is like, obviously, yes, all the pieces are lining up. But as a kid hearing that, all I thought was my dad is very unhappy and I don't want him to die. What can I do to make him not do that? So after listening to everything here, I guess the biggest thing would be that you're a caretaker. Uh, you have a lot of fear that has been instilled in you. You're, everything is very fear-based. Uh, you feel like an alien, like you don't belong. You don't feel like you're good enough. Uh, you've been experiencing double standards. You're voiceless in a lot of ways. You have self-esteem issues. You have been living in this patriarchal system of the religion and the family as well, which will provide a huge influence on your beliefs about relationships and marriage. 
uh, you were nitpicked, uh, weight issues, body issues stuff was was really big. You had a lot of mixed messages growing up, especially when it comes to support. So you have no feeling of security, I think that is fair to say, and I think that will eventually be a, a huge, huge thing and specifically like the things that are making you feel safe are also making you feel unsafe, which will be this really big conflicting message and uh, something will be attractive to you, but will also make it very hard for you to leave. It's just a really big mixed message. So you have all of these things going on and eventually you do have a relationship with someone who is abusive, but it's someone that has no goals and doesn't feel like a protector to you. So you're able to leave that relationship very quickly based upon the circumstances of that. But after that, you do meet the person that this story is about and this person checks all of the boxes of being this security for you and also being in need of a caretaker. And these are like the two strongest things for you. So uh, take us through how you two met and everything that follows that. So I, I met Michael um, my senior year of school. I was at an event um, and he was working security as a bouncer there. Um, I had known of him and I'd heard of him and he was known to be this like really protective, amazing man and his big group of friends. It's another big group of friends as well. Um, everyone looked up to him. He made everyone feel safe. He was very physically fit. He was just known to, to, to be a protector and to help people. If you needed to move, um, in your home, he would be the one who would who would volunteer to help and would help you pack up your home. And those are qualities that I didn't even know I wanted in someone. But once I saw it in him, I was like, yes, that that things that I, I want in a partner. Um, he loved kids. He was so good with kids. And it was just an interesting dynamic seeing this tall six foot man who's like muscular cuddling a baby cuddling a newborn whisking the new baby taking that baby and hogging him from the group and loving that baby so immediately I was like this man's gonna make a great father like I I want I wish I had that nurturing um so these little minor things to me were huge in my mind that made me overlook a lot of red flags. Um, he grew up with trauma. Um, I tended to be attracted towards people who grew up hard because that's what I was familiar with. His dad was homeless when his mom met him. They had him. He grew up also in poverty, lots of moving around, lots of trauma. He And I just thought he was fascinating and interesting. At this point in my life, I was really interested in psychology, um, probably as a way to understand myself more. So when I would see these things that I thought were interesting and unique um, about people's backgrounds, I love learning more about it. And um, it just felt like, well, this is who I am, too. He was also very funny and he was nice. He wants he wanted to be a fireman. And I was like, check that, that checks off. He, he could be a great partner. He has goals in life. 
Um, and we dated for about four years because I wanted to know and make sure I was making the right choices. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't. So here you have someone who comes from a background that you have empathy for, you being a caretaker, you are there for this person, you know, no matter what, what's going on with them, you're, you're there in that way. Everyone seemed to love him. He's a protector. He's someone that people go to. He's this type of person in that community. You see him in that way. And then on top of that, he has this goal to be a fireman, a fire person. And that is stability. That is seen as, you know, you were used to chaos. You were used to the fear-based things. Here's someone that's coming in to create this sense of security in home life, in your personal life, being taken care of physically, but also uh, financially stable in a good job, respected by the community and by everyone else. And no matter what anyone says about other red flags that might be coming in, these things for you, the, for a lot of people, no one is going to bat an eye here about what this person is and who they want to be. I mean, for you, this is the uh, dream possibly for you that you were looking for. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was everything I was looking for. Um, he had a great relationship with his mom. He would talk to his mom at least once a day. He would have lunch with his mom at least once a month. Um, his mom loved me. I felt like I had this future mother-in-law and this family that I always wanted, thing that I had seen. And I just felt like, this is great. Um, he read the Bible every night. He, he wasn't the religion that I was being raised as, but the fact that he read the Bible to me um, was, was like, okay, well, that's all right that he's not the religion I am. He would highlight verses in it. Um, and I just thought, like, you know, there there may be some things about him. I see a little bit of his temper and his anger slip out, but those didn't scare me and they didn't worry me because he had all these other things that filled these needs that had never been met for me. So we we dated for about a year into the relationship. He had confided in me that he never graduated high school. Huge, huge bomb i felt like was dropped on me but the caring non-judgmental side of me said it's okay it's okay um we're gonna get through this together i felt grateful that he shared it to me um and i i said we're you're gonna get your ged come on let's do it so we're in our 20s mid 20s to late 20s and I do everything I need. I, I research how how does someone get their GED? So I had no idea. I graduated high school. I was a college graduate. I didn't tell anyone that he didn't get his high school diploma. Found a place, like a, a program where he could take classes to prepare to get his GED. And then um, I actually went with him. 
I think at this point I had told one of my siblings this and she was shocked. And she told me, this is not okay. This is someone who needs to do this on their own and you don't need to be part of it. I didn't hear her at all because all I heard was, you are a terrible person. You make so many wrong decisions. And then I would almost distort how I felt about her and say, well, you're a snob. We grew up hard. I'm not going to judge someone. Like our own mother didn't get a high school diploma. Who am I to judge this person that I love that loves me so much? So it was just natural to me to help him. I went to those classes with him. It, it, he was so embarrassed. He, he um, would just have these heartfelt conversations with me about how much he loved me because I was willing to help him. And to me, it was just like, of course, of course, I'll help you. Um, he got his GED and the, the, the next journey of him becoming a fireman started, which also released more red flags to the story. In my head, my plan was, I don't want to get married to him until he is a fireman. That was my bottom line of if there's one rule I want to make for myself and stick to, this is my rule. And um, I was terrified to tell him, like, okay, you got your DED, but the next hurdle, though, is that you've got to fulfill your goal of being a fire fireman. Um, if he wanted to change his career, I was fine for it. He just had to prove to me that he was working towards this goal. Um, I did give him an ultimatum and it was terrifying for me to give him an ultimatum. In the end, it was a bonding moment for us because it was him expressing to me, thank you for kicking my butt. Thank you for helping me because this is a goal I want. And thank you for helping me reach these goals. Now, as his life is getting a little more stressful with having to fill the goals he needed to become a fireman. Um, his anger was always there, but now I was seeing it more. Um, there'd be times where he would make dinner and drop the spatula. Most people would pick it up, just keep going about your day. He would explode. He would swear and cuss. And I would stop what I was doing and, and go run to him and be like, are you okay? What happened? What happened? Thinking he had burned himself thinking that the, the, the stove caught on fire and he'd be like, Oh, nothing. I had just dropped a spatula. And it, it be, for a while I was, I was desensitized and scared seeing these outbursts of anger come out. And then I would get up the nerve to say, Hey, how about instead of yelling about it, could you, could you just not yell? Could you just pick up the spatula and like continue about your day? And this started a dynamic of he, he felt like I was insulting him and that was far from what I was doing. Um, he would get really bad road rage. He would pound on the steering wheel, pound the horn, scream at other drivers. He had no problem flicking off other drivers, um, on a highway. He had no problem cutting people off. And it was terrifying being trapped in a car with someone who would get so angry about minor traffic incidences that may or may not have even happened. And, and he would placate me by saying, well, at least I didn't ram into them and pull over and beat them up. 
Um, and, and to me, these weren't just imaginary threats. These, these were things that I had known of him and his friends to do, to, to beat someone up, not in a car situation, but to be angry and for them to lose their temper and physically take it out. That was completely part of the culture of that friend group. And to me, it was scary, but it was, it also made me feel safe of like, okay, well, I'm with the top dog. I'm with the most secure leader of this group. I'm good. So he's not going to hurt me. Um, he, he would always say how he was against, you know, physical violence towards women. Um, he, he would, he reassured me that he would, he would never be that type of person. So eventually part of the goal was he, he needed to stop working these security gigs that paid him a lot, uh, but they weren't getting him anywhere. Um, he decided to go in a direct different career path and he looked at becoming a corrections officer his anger and his stress grew and grew still when he would drink i would kind of just steer clear of him um because i knew like by nighttime that he would be more prone for these anger outbursts for insulting me he would start to get really nasty towards me and i would chalk it up to He's, he's just drunk. He's just doing that thing that we're not really supposed to be doing. And if he just didn't do it so much, then he wouldn't be like this. He started to become really aggressive towards my role in the family, I believe. I, I, happened, I made more money than him, and he could not handle that, and he would take it out on me. He would tell me all the time that his job was harder than mine. All I did was sit at a desk all day. I had no reason to complain. That was him thinking that. He would constantly tell me I was, I was, I had no idea what it was like to live hard. I had no idea what it was like to work hard. And in my mind, I'd be like, well, he's kind of true because his job is hard. He, he would tell me every day, oh, Julia, today. I walked 10 miles. Oh, Julia, today at my work, I, I, I walked 12 miles. And I sweated through my uniform and you'll just never understand. You'll never understand what it's like to be me, what, what it's like to have this job. So it was almost like this thing that I just had to endure. And that was another common thread in my life of just enduring things and feeling like this is what makes me strong. This is what makes me a good person is you just have to endure it and you just have to push through and put your feelings aside, push them down and just endure it. Meanwhile, life and my heartstrings or like my personality is just diminishing smaller and smaller to make room for him and his needs. I remember feeling guilty a lot if I hung out with my friends um, or if I went on like a, a beach weekend trip with friends. He would he would be so sad and I just felt like he was so doting on me and protective. He would be sad if I went away. He'd support it. But then these little comments would pop up of like, oh, what am I going to eat when you're not here? And so obviously I started making food for him when I wasn't there um, to stock his freezer. I would leave post-it notes around the house um, just to tell him how much I missed him and loved him so that while I was gone over the weekend, he could find these notes and feel loved. And, and I 
not feel like I forgot about them. And it was looking back at that, that it's just so, there's so much work involved, so much work in trying to be part of this relationship when I wasn't a main character in the relationship. You are caretaking his emotional needs. You are caretaking his day-to-day now when it comes to feeding him. You are caretaking him when you went to get the GED, finding the school, and then actually going to classes with him. I don't know if you did any of the work for him, but you're caretaking him in every single way so that yes he can go and to to his job and, and and make money but in every other aspect of his life you are taking care of that and on top of that you have your own life that you have to take care of where now you are uh eating your emotions you're not allowed to have emotions in a lot of ways cuz your emotions are his emotions we haven't even gotten to the point where you about to have kids with this person when things are going to take another turn. So how do things start to devolve from, from this point of your relationship? I felt content with his career path. Um, in my mind, I was getting older. I was uh, my late 20s. And according to my religious background, I, I was due for having babies 10 years ago. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to start having kids. I wanted to get married. He also wanted that. So we got married. We eventually had um, a baby and we were so excited. We were so, so excited together for this baby. The first couple of months of being new parents was amazing. It was just magical. Um, all of the, what is it called? Stereotypes or, or those things people say of like motherhood's great like they all became true and I finally understood these like fantasy like romantic phrases I'd hear about motherhood and parenthood um when we would go out in public he insisted on either holding the baby wearing the baby in a baby carrier or holding the baby in the car seat and at first it was, it seemed chivalrous where it's like, yeah, thank you. Thank you for holding the baby. I am tired. But eventually I realized it's not because he was helping me. He loved the attention he got when he was that doting dad with a baby. Um, we, we'd go to the grocery store and people would stop us and want to comment on the baby um, all the time. All the time. Every time we went out, people would comment on the baby or him taking care of the baby. And I, it made me proud of him in a way. It, it confirms me like, yes, I've got that partner who's a great dad. Everyone else can see it too. But slowly, when I would say like, I should hold the baby this time. And he would not let me. Then I started realizing, oh, this, this is a little different than what I thought it was. And if I dare brought up or teased him about how much he loved showing off the baby, he would immediately get so angry and so offended. Why would you even dare tell me that I shouldn't hold my own baby? 
So it just became this confusing thing of, you know what, just, just let them always hold the baby in public. Uh, when we were at home, it, it was different. I was the main parent. I felt like a, a single mom who was married. A, a common excuse for him was that he couldn't help because he didn't, he, he didn't breastfeed the baby. How could he help? Why should he have to get up at night if he couldn't comfort the baby when the baby cried? So that to me was our situation where things made sense. It makes sense that he's telling me this, even though most partners, um, even if they aren't, you know, nursing a baby, they still get up and help. Um, but his, his excuses to me made sense on top of him working um, a very stressful, exhausting, physically demanding job. It was like, yeah, of course, I'll get up 10 times in the middle of the night because I just work a desk job. I just work a desk job and it's, it's I, I can do this. Don't worry about it. You sleep, you have a great night's sleep and I'll do all the parenting. Um, we would have conversations about being parents that I thought were normal. Um, looking back, I can see how they were almost like trauma responses. We would have conversations about how much we loved our son. His name is Sam. Um, how much we loved Sam and how like we just couldn't imagine if anything happened to Sam. If Sam got sick, would we be able to survive as a, as a partnership? Would we be able to survive as individuals? And then our conversations would get deeper and darker. We would talk about if our family unit that we had created together was destroyed or taken apart, if I cheated on them, if, the, if, if baby Sam passed away, then the go-to was that he would kill himself or if I left him that he would probably want to kill me and the baby. Now, these to me were things that in a way I felt like, yeah, yeah, if he cheated on me, I'd probably want to kill him too. But I didn't, so it was normalized. I didn't feel scared when he told me that because I also agreed like, yes, that would be traumatic. And yes, I would probably feel extreme emotions such as not wanting to live, not wanting to know how I would get through that. Your empathy and understanding and caretaking of everyone else's feelings but your own is just so strong, so strong, that it just override it just overrides everything. It really does. No matter what, you will always put yourself in someone else's shoes over yours. Absolutely. Um, that was a big part of my upbringing was to almost be a, a servant to others, servant in the way as everyone needs help. And if everyone would just help everyone to the ability that they could, things would be better. And I do agree with that. But I, to me, it was just reinforced to me and very extreme measures in very extreme circumstances that it all just seems normal. Um, like being, being a mom was hard. It was exhausting. And I, I know that's something people say being a mom is hard. And I would think, okay, the things I'm going through, it's hard. And that's what people told me. But what I didn't realize was that it shouldn't have been as hard as what I was dealing with because of all the chaos around me that I could not and didn't know I could do something about. I felt trapped all the time, scared. 
would you let would you let yourself feel scared i think i did allow myself to feel scared and it ended up with me feeling like i was a bad person and i was guilty and i was responsible for this guilt and fear of not being good enough it was all internalized and the only thing that made sense to me was that i was the common denominator and that i was the one who was wrong so i i had thought for some reason that once we had children his anger and the and the violence and the overreacting would stop because we had both agreed on and talked about what kind of parents we wanted to be we wanted to be better than the parents that we had we didn't want them to struggle with poverty or violence and we talked specifics about things we didn't like growing up and how we could avoid that with our own kids so eventually uh, the promise of the dream that fireman dream the future uh, was not happening so right now you're kind of battling between two existences or two realities that are going on so i guess i guess take us through this point where you know the future that you thought you were going to have is now really not the reality of what's going on. And I guess the recognition of that once the um, fireman dream really isn't um, showing itself. I'm going to answer that, but interject with this other thing. Um, His anger and temper, I did talk to him about that and told him my concerns about it. And we had discussed him seeking help for it, which was a huge monumental thing for him to admit. Um, he did start seeing a therapist and he got medication and his anger didn't disappear, but it went down a lot. Um, that to me made me feel safe and reassured yet again that I can talk to him about these concerns and he's going to do some work to fix it um it just didn't make it go away which i i don't i didn't think it would go away i just hoped it would stop so yeah we keep chucking along we've got what i think is a a pretty happy family we have a house we have a baby we have a marriage um he's not really pursuing the fireman career track anymore, but it's okay because he has a full-time job in a correctional facility. Um, Being a mom was hard. Things felt distant between us, but that was something I had also heard of. You know, when you're married and you have a baby, things in your marriage change. Um, it, it, It affects your marriage. And so what I thought this distance was, it just chalked up to what people had said. It changes your marriage. It's hard. Um, at, at a certain point, I kind of felt like we were just roommates in a house. Um, the love and the adoration that he had for me um, was gone. It all transferred onto Sam. And my my love and attention grew to encompass Sam. And I noticed this shift with Michael that he would almost start to get jealous of Sam. So I had to work doubly hard to make sure I was making my husband feel loved 
and to make sure my child felt loved and cared for. We're not as lovey-dovey. We're not as chatty, but we're just exhausted. We're parents. And this, this is what life is. Um, I started noticing other weird patterns with him where he didn't want me to hang out with him when he watched after work for him to decompress. We used to spend time together like that, but it became, nope, it's just boys, boys night. Me and Sam are going to watch TV for a little bit. You go upstairs and um, you do your own thing. So I, I felt like I was being cut away or torn away. Not only was I not getting his attention, but he was taking my child, my child's love also away from me. Um, what I learned to find out was things were adding up that didn't make sense to me. So one night I decided to check his phone and I was scared because um, that is not something I'd ever done before, but it was just a gut feeling I had of why is he on his phone so much? Why does he want all of this one-on-one -on -one alone time now? Um, what's he doing? So he went to bed and I checked his phone and I saw that about a year's worth of communication between him and a coworker of him cheating, physically cheating on me, talking about physical things they had done physical things that they want to do, talking about places where they could do this at work. And everything started adding up. That's why he's been coming home so late. Okay. He has so much of this like communication with this person. That's why he's on his phone so much. Reading the conversations on his phone, it was the first time where I had an out-of-body experience where I honestly felt like I had was looking at myself from above and it was, it was just such a bizarre feeling of, I don't understand these words I'm reading from his phone because I understand I'm reading his phone, but this is not sound like my husband. Um, this, this is just so weird. There's must be a mistake. So I went and woke him up, which is a huge, no, no, you do not wake him up when he's trying to sleep for his heavy, physically demanding day of work the next day, um, I woke him up and I said, what is this? Wh what does this mean? Are you cheating on me? It was clear he was cheating on me. And immediately the first thing he said was, I'll move out right now. And I look back at that. It stopped me in his tr my tracks that he said that. Because I was expecting him to say, I'm sorry, let's work on this. So the, the script flipped again immediately of, you're not leaving. You're not leaving here. We're going to work through this. And the dynamic of this whole relationship of finding out he was cheating was no longer, you broke my trust and cheated on me. It was, what did I do to make you do this? And how can I make you stay? It was humiliating and um, just utterly humiliating and something that I never thought I would ever have to encounter in my life. I had always thought if I had a partner that cheated on me, you, you leave them. But my situation was different because it's like, well, we're married and we have a kid. Um, 
I can't just leave. It's not as simple as that. I ended up having a, a panic attack. Um, you know what? I should probably back up and 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 say I, I was eight months pregnant at this with our second son, Liam, um, when I checked his phone and found out that he had been cheating on me. Which added another layer to he can't just move out of this house. We have a child and another one on the way. What does he mean? He'll just move. Like, no, 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 no. That does not fit this story of, of what I thought was going to happen in my life. Um, I had a panic attack. I ended up having a bloodshot eye. Um, it's sensitive to me because I had taken a picture later that week. And when I see that picture, I can see the bloodshot ring in the whites of my eye and it just makes me so sad and sick um i didn't the next morning i didn't know what to do i went to work because <laughs> i honestly didn't know what to do i didn't want to call out sick because i didn't ever do that um i did go to work and then was like wow what what am I doing here I need to leave I need to go home so then I just said I was sick and went home and tried to process what was happening um we talked about it more that day I got trickle truth information from him um his way of handling the situation was hey I'm sorry I didn't mean to hurt you let's move past this and what I wanted to do was to talk about what led him to want to have an affair and um, what can we do to make it better? What can we do to fix this? Um, his story would change slightly about the text communications. Um, maybe like the second day after I'd found the communications, he, he had said, okay, okay, I need to tell you something. You're not going to believe it. All of those texts, it was fantasy. It was just like a fantasy communication. And I'd look at them and be like, that wasn't fantasy. I, I read past and present tense events that you and your fair partner had. And he would conclude by saying, see, I told you you wouldn't understand. I, I, I knew... Anything I say, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. You're not going to believe anything I said. And that was pretty much him throwing his hands up in the air and acting like, you're never going to get over this, so I don't want to talk about it anymore. It, it, I remember it being, I, I couldn't even grieve for three or four days before I was forced to be told, you need to get over this or it's not going to work. Um, we did see a marriage counselor. We saw her twice. And um, it was just so amazing because the second time we met with her, we were cured. <laughs> that's, and that's how he was able to get out of us not seeing therapy because during these, the therapy sessions, he was kind. He was understanding. He was apologetic. We had suggestions of making date nights. Um, bringing things that we had common interest about doing that again to get, you know, to reconnect. 
and it it was just like, yeah, 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 great. This is so good. We saw a therapist. So good for having these tips of, yeah, we just need to reconnect. And um, we never did. We never did. We never went on dates. He never did any of the work. Um, and that was something that I had told him of, this is a problem that you acted upon. Um, and, and I need you to act upon fixing it. So these date nights we're supposed to do. I want you to plan them and I want you to find a sitter. And that was never going to happen because that was never a role he played in our relationship. It was, I took care of him and I did all of the mental load. I did all of the planning. Um, so to, to expect him to do a heroic move, such as planning a date night, um, it, it never happened. And I just constantly felt like I wanted him to pick me, like, pick me. I'm your wife. I'm the person you're supposed to be with. As opposed to me thinking he's not picking me and I deserve someone better and I need to leave. But I didn't want to break up the family because divorce was not an option in my mind. So eventually you have your uh, second child and a lot of the same things start happening again. And in the process of, you know, taking care of your children and the same things happening, he does end up uh, cheating again. You found that out as well. Uh, eventually that gets, uh, you know, smoothed over your relationship continues and a thing that starts happening here is that you start to notice that his relationship with the children, um, isn't the same, that there is, I guess, anger toward the children and that becomes a greater concern, for you over yourself that now you have to protect children. So uh, walk us through this part of uh, your relationship. So we go back to our normal lifestyle of being parents who are tired, who are trying to get over um, an affair in our timeline. Um, his, his parenting from being a parent of one child to two drastically changed. Um, on his days off, he watched the kids and he would barely interact with them. He became more isolated um, with his social group. He no longer wanted to hang out with those people as much. And he would just say, they don't understand me. They don't know how hard it is to have the life I've had. They don't know what it's like to have a demanding physical job. So parts of his personality were changing slowly all at the same time. He, he'd go to the grocery store with the boys and I'd be at work and he would call me and he would say, where's the bread? Where's the bread at the grocery store? And I kind of think it was funny, like, it's okay, like, you've been to a grocery store before, you can do this. But it would then become this pattern of him completely relying on me to vent to me 
um, like a, a, a whipping boy or a whipping child where I would just get berated and screamed at nonstop. Where are the diapers? And I'd be like, I'm at work. I'm not sure where the diapers are. You should check the home that you live in and the room where your child lives. Maybe they're in there. I wouldn't say it like that, but that's in my, that's how my brain would process it. And I would be able to patiently walk him through these things because in my mind, he was overwhelmed and exhausted. And I didn't want to be one more problem in his life. So I constantly would coddle him and do everything I could to help him. Um, he started, he picked up a hobby of teaching self-defense that ended up consuming a lot of his free time. Any free time he had, it was because he was um, going to go to this self-defense class. And he, he really got into CrossFit, too. Um, and he would shift when he would go to bed. Instead of him going to bed after I put the kids to bed, it was he'd go to bed as soon as he ate dinner and all of the parenting was left on me. He wouldn't be at the home in the morning because he was working out or at a CrossFit gym. So I had to take care of the kids in the morning, getting them to daycare before work. He disagreed with the way I wanted to parent the kids. I had read about positive parenting, um, completely opposite from what I had grown up with. And it did feel like a foreign concept to me, this idea of using positive reinforcement to raise children as opposed to negative and fearful physical um, consequences to problems. He, he just did not agree with um, this type of parenting. He felt like it was more important to, to raise kids with fear because that's how he was raised. He wanted the boys to be wild. He wanted them to be loud. He almost embraced and loved the energy that boys brought into the family. Um, I understood that, yeah, um, sometimes boy children can be very energetic, but I would always just think, I don't think there should be this much wrestling and throwing and um, chaos all the time. And I would constantly be told to get over it, that these boys are going to be boys. Um, he would encourage the boys to wrestle each other. He would encourage the boys to, if you run away from a fight, you are weak. You have to prove to everyone and to this bully that you will stand up for yourself by hitting them. And I would hear him say this to the children and just be blown away at like, how in the world would someone think that this is a good idea, a good motto to live by? And I would tell the kids, dad has some good advice, but we also have to follow the rules of the school and there's no physical violence allowed. Um, if you're being attacked, which probably will never happen, but if you were to be attacked, I want you to protect yourself and defend yourself, but I don't want you to start fight. And I don't want you to immediately hurt somebody when, when you could call for help first. You need to call for help before you try to take this battle. So I would try to 
calm their fears that A, you're not going to get in fight at school and calm their fears of if it does happen, you are allowed to protect yourself, but you do need to follow the rules of the school also. This was a huge contention in our relationship, the what to do when you're bullied. It was something that Michael had experienced intensely growing up of being bullied in school. So I understood where he came from, but I also felt like we were instilling in our children fear that they were going to get attacked. And over time, it was noticeable that it was affecting Sam, our older son, he in kindergarten he was he was mature and sullen, thoughtful and and dark. Um, he loved zombies. They were pretty new and cool at the time. Um, so he had a lot of narratives and and play as I'm fighting zombies. He would have situations at school where he would maybe get into an argument with another kid. And he would come home and Sam would tell me about it and how much Sam just wanted to fight him. Sam just wanted to immediately punch him, punch him in the face. And I'd have to tell Sam, like, well, it seems like the conversation that happened, if you jump to the conclusion of hitting him, that may not, that may be an overreaction. Because it doesn't sound like violence was part of this conversation at all. There were times when Michael would be watching the kids at home and um, my mom would stop by the house to drop something off. Um, it didn't happen very much where she would stop by in general, um, but if she did stop by, it would most likely be unannounced. Um, and she would call me after she dropped it off and say, hey, um, I went to your house. Your kids are inside. I don't know where Michael is. Sam said he's hungry and Liam has a full diaper. And I'd be like, well, great, mom. Thanks. Thanks for calling me and telling me this. I'm at work. I don't know what, like, I'm, I'm not there to help. And uh, another situation happened where a sister stopped by, told me the same thing. And, and they would tell me from a point of, I'm sure what they thought was love and concern of, hey, this is, this is bizarre. Um, your husband is working out in the shed and in the backyard and no one's watching the kids. And I would tell Michael, Hey, my mom noticed the kids weren't really being cared for. Do you, do you think maybe you shouldn't be working out while you're watching them? And he would have so many excuses and so much anger. First thing that he would tell me is why, why are they stopping by? That was his immediate thing of, it's my fault that my mom stopped by to drop something off. If she hadn't have stopped by, this wouldn't be a problem. That's the way he thought. Um, and then he would say, well, they weren't hungry. I offered them food before I started my workout, but they didn't want to eat. They're fine. Everything was, they're fine. It's okay. And I just didn't know what to do. And I started feeling really anxious, really sick to my stomach of my partner is not watching the kids safely and I'm trying to work. I can't count on him to take care of the kids. My life is spiraling out of control. 
Um, my parents would lecture me. They started noticing that Michael wasn't very involved with parenting, um, wasn't very involved with when we'd have a family dinner. Michael was there more as like a guest to be waited on while I was there to um, make sure our kids were being fed, make sure everyone else was having a good time. And they, they would say things to me like, you know what, your husband should really step up more. He needs to help out more. And I'd be like, in my head, I'd be like, well, yeah, I agree. Duh, I think so too. And it ended up with me not telling them stuff about Michael anymore um, because I didn't want to hear them blame me for it anymore. I, I never was able to receive helpful support from family such as, hey, you deserve better than this and your kids deserve better than this. What can we do to help you? What can we do to help support you? It seems like this relationship is one-sided and you seem overwhelmed and exhausted. It was more of, Julia, what are you doing and what are you not doing to fix this problem? But eventually you did end up meeting someone that alerted you to the situation that you were living in, that you were being abused. So uh, take us through uh, this aspect of uh, your story. I met Kate at Library Storytime because um, I, I would take kids the story time it was something I just really enjoyed I saw her there and was like that girl <laughs> she's gonna be my friend I don't know why I happened to just feel like she was a safe person to have in my life she was different for me she was just very normal um she seemed like a perfect mom her hair was like nicely done she had cute clothes on and she just seemed she was just positive and we had similar parenting styles similar um food styles with our kids of you know just not wanting our kids to have a lot of junk food or like sugar and I felt like oh this is awesome my friendship with Kate I too am going to pretend like I'm normal my marriage is normal and um I just want to feel normal. And so by doing that, I didn't talk about my marriage to Kate. I didn't talk about Michael. Um, I didn't talk about situations of, of growing up that made me feel different from other people, such as growing up in this strict religion, growing up with you know poverty or in a big family. I just, I just wanted to be accepted. Um, and the amazing thing about Kate is she noticed and she would slowly ask me and say things to me and say, I've noticed um, I don't see Michael around. How is he doing? And I would try to skirt around the issue or not talk about it. But she, she had this really gentle approach that opened the floodgates in my life um, for kindness and our newness in the relationship and because of how depleted I was of support and kindness, the simple act of her asking me, how am I doing? How is he doing? What is going on? 
I, I had realized I can't even hide the dysfunction from this person that this, I, I need to tell her everything, but it was just like a, a moment of this person who I don't know too well, who I've purposely been trying to hide traumatic things from cares about me enough to continually gently ask me questions and made me feel safe and made me feel like I'm not bad because these things have happened and that I, me and my kids deserve better. So right here, this person has planted a seed in you as far as what's going on in your relationship and is giving you this support. But then also what's going on is you are having issues with your kids and that becomes a really big factor uh, for you in uh, leaving and during this process, ramping up of things is is going on, especially when it comes to the, the neglect of, of of kids. So, a big warning uh, to everyone right here: we're going to be discussing uh, self harm. So, maybe for the next uh, three to four minutes, uh, if to skip over this part, if need be, because there is a graphic depiction of, of self harm or description of self harm in here. Uh, so, uh, a big trigger warning right there. And, and I guess now Julia, just take us through uh, what happened from this point. So Sam is eight years old. He's in third grade. He seemed pretty typical kid except besides like being obsessed with zombies, um, having these like grudges he would hold against other kids. I knew like that wasn't totally typical, but it didn't strike me as anything um, to be super concerned about. Um, He did talk about wanting to physically hurt kids, specifics about wanting to punch them. Um, But this, he was parroting what his father had told him, Sam, if you get in a fight, you need to attack your bully. You need to punch him in his face till he's bloody. And it was specific graphic advice of you need to make him bloody. Um, I would tell Sam's teachers at the beginning of the year, like Sam holds his emotions in and sometimes um, he gets angry and overwhelmed. And I want you to know that if he acts out, he's not doing it to be disrespectful. Please just be patient with him. Um, because I think he's trying to process some things in his mind. Like I didn't know how to tell teachers that his dad is encouraging him to hit people and hurt them and make them bloody. Um, because Sam, Sam hadn't acted on it, but it, it, it was enough to the point where I felt like I needed to let teachers know, Hey, if he acts out, please be patient and help, please help guide us on what to do next. So one day I get a call from school that Sam has self-harmed at school. And um, I, I didn't have any personal experience with self-harming, but I knew what it was. Um, and I knew that it was more, it was a very complex way of, a, of someone trying to deal with intense emotions. Um, I couldn't fathom, though, with him being my son and him being so young, what it meant and where it came from um looking back obviously um it it was coming from our home (laughs) all of this chaos was coming from our home and um 
exploding out on our, our son. Um, so probably within that same week, Michael, I think was working at night at this time. I put the kids to bed and I go to the bathroom and I come out of the bathroom and I see little Sam, eight year old Sam in the kitchen. And he's like staring out into the hallway and he has a, he's at the counter of the kitchen and he has a large butcher knife in his hand and he is trying to chop his hand off with the knife. Seeing this was obviously very shocking. It was like an alternate universe where I just opened the bathroom. What is a, what is my son doing the way? B, what is he doing in the kitchen? Why does he have a knife? And why is he trying to cut his hand off? I ran to him, saw that his hand did have indentations on it because I wasn't sure. Like, is he just making these motions? Um, he had indentations on his hand. I was able to get the knife out of him and he just crumpled in my arms. He felt like a, a feather just crumpled in my arms. And he just started bawling, saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I just want to die. Um, I'm bawling. He's bawling. I'm confused. Still, I don't know what to do, which is a common thread in my life. Um, I call Michael at work, and I was able to get through to talk to him, and my voice is so shaky, and I said, you need to come home now. I need you. I need you home right now. Sam has just tried to hurt himself with a knife because I couldn't get the words out to explain what I saw because it was so disturbing. And Michael said, are you sure? I'm at work right now. I'm kind of busy. And I took a deep breath and I was like, okay, okay. Maybe I'm not using enough words to let him know how serious this is. And I didn't even want to say it in front of Sam. I was so cautious about what Sam heard. But I, I knew I had to say, Sam tried to cut his arm off. He says he wants to die. Um, Michael just said, okay, just be calm. Just be calm. Um, we'll just work on it in the morning. Just get him in bed. Get him safe. We'll just, we'll just talk about it in the morning when I get home. So I don't know how I slept that night I don't know how he slept that night um Sam and in the in the morning I believe I called his Sam's uh, guidance counselor at school because I felt safe enough to admit and to ask for advice um because he had self-harmed at school earlier I felt like okay well they, they know a little bit more about the trajectory of where this is going am I overreacting my husband thinks I'm overreacting um I don't know what to do in this case. So the counselor advises me to take my son to um, an ER to get a psych eval. Michael is completely against it. Completely, completely against it. Um, he thinks it's not a big deal. We can work on it. We just have to tell Sam not to do that. And that, that was pretty much what Michael thought was the, the best way to go about it. I did take Sam to the ER. It was very emotional and very traumatizing. He ended up being transferred to an inpatient facility for about four or five days. It 
it, it was so scary and so sad having my, you know, what I looked at as my baby, my eight-year-old baby is dealing with these in, intense emotions and acting upon them in extreme ways. And I'm in, and now he's in a facility. Like it just didn't make sense to me during the week where Sam is in the inpatient facility, Michael took his anger and chaos to a level that I'd never experienced before. I would come home from work and Michael would have Liam and Liam was sitting on, on the couch in a puddle of what I, what was urine and hungry and, and Michael would deny it all. That's, that's not pee. He didn't, he didn't do that. And then he, he started to do this like jokey thing he thought was funny to scare me and say, I didn't feed him all day, by the way. Uh, just so you know, he, I'm not going to feed him anymore. And I just thought everything was just so bizarre. Like this makes no sense. Why is he acting? Why is Michael acting like this? This is not funny. Um, the neglect towards our children was out the roof. And I, I confronted Michael about it. And I asked him, I need your support. Why can't you help me with this together? And it was the first time where Michael physically made me feel unsafe. Uh, physically, I, I can recognize that our warning signs of someone is, is, is not in their right mind. Um, his, his, I felt like his pupils would become so large, his eyes would look black. His fists were balled up. Um, his neck veins were bulging. And he lunged at me and took a step at me like he was going to hit me and Liam at this point was behind me and he gets in between us and he looks at his dad and his mom who he loves so much and he looks at his dad and he says daddy don't hit mommy you you can't do that and I felt like time stood still and I felt scared of oh no Oh no, Liam inserted himself into this. He's about to get hit. I'm about to get hit. Nobody got hit. Michael backed up. He said he was just kidding. And um, I was left in the puddle to take care of everything, of having to support Liam and say, come on, let's go, let's go over here and talk. Daddy, daddy didn't really mean that. Daddy would never hit mommy. Um I would just keep repeating to myself, he can be as mean to me as he wants. But as soon as he starts being mean to the children and it affects them, I'm done. That's my bottom line. I'm allowed to divorce him. I'm allowed to divorce him when he is hurting the children that we brought into this world. So Michael is um, being chaotic and awful. The, the days where Sam is impatient. Sam finally get cleared to come home. We're so excited. There's so much work to do, though, to prepare the house to allow Sam to get back home. We had to remove all knives from our house, all the sharps, all the guns, obviously, had to be locked up. 
um, we could have knives in the kitchen. They just had to be locked up, which was very, very difficult for Michael to comprehend and to agree with. He did not want to lock up his guns. It, it was just very challenging. But the, the good thing was Sam is coming home. About two days after he came home, after Sam was home, um, I, I went and had therapy after work. And I was a little nervous because yet again, I had to leave the father of the kids in charge of the children. But I felt like, you know what? I deserve to go to therapy. I need therapy to so come back from the therapy session. And Sam's in the backyard unattended with a hacksaw. And he's trying to make a zombie weapon. And I, yeah, that, that's like my final straw. This is where I finally have the courage to say enough, enough is enough. Michael was inside. He had allowed Sam to have the hacksaw because he said, Sam, don't hurt yourself with it. And Sam said, okay. And to me, I was just like, I can't, I can't even rely on this man to safely watch her kids. I'm done. So I had called my dad. I tried to tell him as simply as I could, I need help. I need you to help me. I cannot be married to this man anymore. It is not safe for me or the kids. I need you to help me ask him to leave the house. And my dad at first was like, oh, I don't know. Maybe this is stuff you guys could work through. And I had to be like, dad, no, 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 no. I got it. I don't have time to tell you all this stuff. But, you know, he cheated on me a year ago. We tried to work through it and his violent behavior has only been escalating and I'm scared. I'm scared. I cannot even leave him at home while I'm at a therapy session and have him safely watch the kids. My dad agreed and we made a plan that I, me and the kids would be out of the house and my dad would be in the driveway for when Michael came home and he would talk to Michael. Um, he had a pretty good relationship with him. He told Michael, you know, Julia is concerned and, and she, she would like you to move out of the house just for a couple days. Um, and Michael resisted. He did not want to, he refused. He didn't understand why anything was wrong. He suggested that he move into the basement of our home and he would just live there while we figure things out. But he adamantly said, I will not be kicked out of my own home. I am not leaving. Um, and that, put me on an anxiety tailspin of being completely fearful and scared. I yet again, didn't know what to do. I talked to people at my son's school and I said, listen, this, this huge neglectful event happened and I'm scared to take the kids to school because I'm scared that their dad who has, um, you know, we, their dad who we, they live with, I'm scared that he will come to the school and take our kids during school hours. And I'm scared I will never see the kids again. Because I, I crossed that boundary for Michael of ruining our life goals of being a family unit together. And he had told me in the past what how he would feel if if this family unit was destroyed. If a child, one of our kids, you know, had an illness and passed away or if someone had cheated. I, I knew... And I also feared that he would physically hurt us and kill us because I was asking him to leave the home. The school was amazing. 
and so kind to me. And they suggested that I get a restraining order and start the process of making it legally possible so that he couldn't take the kids out of school. Um, I was awarded with a two-year order of protection against Michael. The people involved, the women's advocate group, were amazing. I feel like it's a blur in my mind of feeling, of being able to say, I'm in an abusive relationship. I need help. Am I being a baby because he did these things? I'm not sure. And I had to have it validated to me that, yes, you're being abused. Yes, this is neglectful. And it is not okay. Unfortunately, with that order of protection, I had to go back to the judge and get it dismissed, withdrawn, because once that was filed, he was no longer allowed to have a firearm at work, which was part of his job. He had to carry a firearm. Um, So in order to maintain a family where he could have a job and not spiral completely, I was afraid Michael was going to hurt himself. I wanted to do everything I could to not disrupt our lives anymore. So I dropped the restraining order so that he could continue working. Months later, he he ended up being on like suicide watch from his lieutenant at work. Um, It was very serious. He was very depressed, very sad. And I just kept hanging on to, I knew deep down that if Michael could just find someone to take care of him, everything would be better. And it was just such an odd thing in my mind to think, but it's actually what ended up happening and helping the most. Um, He got a girlfriend um, after six months. We weren't even legally divorced. Um, This girlfriend he had was amazing. Yet again, he, he meets these amazing, like kind, empathetic women. Um, The first year of co-parenting with him, um, at this time, I'm living at home with my parents in the chaos of my childhood home that I had grown up in with the fighting. The fighting between my parents never stopped. So I was escaping one chaotic, dysfunctional home with my husband into my childhood home with my parents where their fighting continued. I didn't feel safe. I just felt completely like I was letting down my children of, I did this huge step to protect us and it's not enough. Um, so now just, I'm in a home where just me and my kids live and I'm just focusing on how do I keep a peaceful, calm environment I really leaned into um, this idea of like hibernating and being calm and peaceful. I, I, I'm always shocked each week of feeling like, wow, I cannot believe how peaceful I feel. And I realize, oh, it's because no one broke anything. Um, no, no one cussed at me. No one put a dent in the wall. I feel calm because I know Michael isn't about to storm in from a bad day of work and berate all of us. Um, I am trying, I'm learning more about generational trauma and how not to pass it on. Um, Having a more balanced perspective 
um, having to trust myself, my, my dreams in life of needing to feel normal by having a, a marriage and a partner and kids. It's finally for the first time is not a dream or a goal of mine. I am so happy with being alone and knowing that it's the right thing for me in my situation with my kids, um, being happy with myself and not feeling like I have to have another person in this family to be whole, to be okay, to be approved, to be normal. Um, I try to teach my kids on how to make good decisions. Um, I'm sensitive to not wanting to tell them what to do, to not control them because that affected me so much. I encourage my children to have their own ideas and to be proud of their hobbies. And um, I teach them to trust themselves. And part of listening to your podcast and being very interested in psychology is looking for patterns and behavior. Um, I, I do tell my kids, you know, watch the patterns that people do, watch their actions. Sometimes people will tell you things and it, it doesn't mean anything. It's really important to watch the patterns and that you are, are not responsible for anyone else's happiness. So before we get to our words of wisdom, I have one question for you. You've been living in a way where you haven't been allowed to have emotions and feelings. So in your work now that you're doing with yourself, how do you go about this process? What does that feel like? And as far as being angry or being upset with people, is that an issue for you? Because you're so empathetic to other people. How are you and the person that you're working with or a therapist or whoever helping you through this? Because this is a big roadblock for you in the sense of, I need to take care of me and my stuff. So where did, where did you begin with that? Interesting because I I have a therapist that I've been seeing for two years and I have told you more things that I have ever told her because when I started seeing her, it was about how, how, how do I raise a son who's dealing with depression when I am feeling depressed as well? Um, I feel an overabundance of feelings, of so many thoughts, um, trying not to gaslight myself, trying to get my thoughts on paper, having my therapist validate my thoughts has been so important to then say, yes, this happened. No, it is not okay. And let me give you a hug, <laughs> pretty much. Um, and yet again, listening to the podcast has been so, so important to hear other stories about confident, sounding, amazing people that I can relate to bits and parts of their stories and to say, 
I, I didn't do anything to deserve this. Just like they didn't deserve to go through what they dealt with either. You're, you know, it's going to be a process, but you are going to, you're going to get there. Yeah, I, I can feel it. I'm, and being aware that this is like an onion that I'm slowly peeling has been really helpful to think of. Um, I may process one trauma and feel better and be hit with another trauma that I didn't realize was traumatizing. And I'm learning that it's okay and I'm not going to be destroyed, that I can keep processing this and keep feeling safe and um, keep going forward. And I can have more control because of who I allow in my life and eliminate the chaos. So you said trauma and being safe and processing everything. How difficult was it to do this process without re-traumatizing yourself? Did you ask your therapist if you should do this beforehand? <laughs> yeah, um, I did. I told her after the process of you and I talking on the phone, so after I had emailed, and then after we had our first interview, um, we had missed some sessions because of the holidays. And when I had told her towards the end of one of our our sessions, I was very emotional. And I felt like she was going to be mad at me. And she was not mad at me. She has been completely supportive and helpful. Um, through this and I feel like a huge weight is lifted off of me where I'm not keeping the secret inside of me of feeling so different and weird um I I feel more confident and ready to move on to unfortunately the next trauma that I'll have to be processing but it it gives me the strength and encouragement to know that I have a good support system with my therapist, um, who is really the only person that I allow deeply in my life right now. But with without having found her, I I don't know where I would be, honestly. My my goal or my 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 fantasy daydream was if I can't take life anymore, I'm gonna pack my kids up and we're gonna move to some nice little beach somewhere and I'm going to work and go to the beach <laughs> and that's going to be my life and so I don't have that like daydream fantasy anymore um, with the help and support of my therapist and if you had any words of wisdom or advice for others what would it be um my my advice is that you know sometimes you're just dealt with a, a difficult start in life. You can't pick your family. I felt stuck all the time. I ended up picking friends and partners who mimicked what I thought was normal behavior from what my mother and father raised me with and friends need to build you up and make you feel safe. Your partner needs to build you up and make you feel safe. 
And in the end, it's it's better to be alone than to live with the chaos. You've survived your whole life. You are a survivor. Everything you've done has just been to survive the situation that you're in. And your children are dealing with a lot and you're helping them as much as possible, as much as you can during this whole process because you know they're dealing with some very serious issues and self-harm and suicidal uh, ideation um, and everything that encompasses that. And, you know, you're a good mom and you're doing the right things and, you know, you're going to be dealing with your own deprogramming of the stuff that you went through and you're going through your things, but you and your kids are going to be able to heal together. And there's a lot of people out there that are going through the exact same thing as you. And I know that you helped uh, a lot of people today. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much, Brandon. And thank you to all the other survivors who have shared their stories. It has been immensely impactful to process um, and relate and understand things I have gone through. So once again, Julia, I really can't thank you enough for being a guest on our show today. You're just going to help so many people out there. And if you want to be a guest like Julia was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There, please read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. Also at our website, we have our very own safe social network. It's our support group at the top of the page. There's a button that says support group. When you click on that, it'll take you to our support group. And there you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We have forum boards for you to post on to get the support that you need and to support other survivors like yourself. We have ad-free episodes on there and episodes that never made it to air. So please do join our support group today if you need support. And if you need even more support, please do go visit our friends at Domestic domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number, every email, every website address for every shelter, no matter how big or small the town you are in. Domestic Shelters has it all. It's a wonderful resource. It's a wonderful It's a wonderful organization and a wonderful website. And there's great people working there like Ashley. Hello to Ashley. So big thanks to uh, domesticshelters.org for just existing. And that is it for our show today. So for myself and Julia, we hope you have a good night.